Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's Cato Institute uh, Hill Forum. Um, today's event is about Obama's national security national security policy, and um, I'm Kurt Couchman. I'm manager of government affairs at the Cato Institute. Before we get started, I have a couple of quick housekeeping things that I'd like to take care of. Uh, first of all, we have some handouts uh, out on the registration table. I hope you've all gotten a chance to get a hold of those. Um, also, I wanted to bring your attention to the Cato Handbook on Policy. Um, this is our current edition, but we're getting a new edition, which we're calling the Cato Handbook for Policymakers in January. It's online, and uh, if you're a congressional staffer, see me and I'll get you a copy as well. Um, I also want to bring your attention to the counterterrorism conference that the Cato Institute is going to be hosting January 12th through 13th. Uh, from the invitation, this conference presents solid, immensely practical analyses of strategic counterterrorism policies based on the lessons and experiences of the past eight years and earlier, and on what proven strategies will yield the most beneficial results for the United States. In addition, the conference focuses on defining realistic objectives and allocating military, federal, and state government expenditures according to these goals. Uh, the website, if you want more information or are interested in uh, registering for the event, is www.cato.org slash counterterrorism. All right. Can I just uh, interject for a second on that? That sure. conference is about not just uh, counterterrorism but about not overreacting to terrorism. So we're saying there's a threat of terrorism and there's a threat of overreacting to it and freaking out about it and doing more harm to yourself than the terrorists did in the first place. That's what makes that conference different than other counterterrorism conferences for people who might be interested. All right. Thanks, Ben. Um, our first speaker today is Christopher Preble. He's the Director of Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Uh, prior to joining Cato in 2003, he taught history at St. Cloud University and also at Temple University. Preble was a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy and is a veteran of the Gulf War, serving on the USS Ticonderoga from 1990 to 1993. He is the author of Exiting Iraq, Why the U.S. Must End the Military Occupation and Renew the War Against Al-Qaeda, which examines U.S. strategic interests in Iraq, and John F. Kennedy and the Missile Gap, a book discussing the political and economic roots of national security strategy in the late 1950s and early 1960s. He's also in the final stages of another book, which I believe is due to be released at the uh, end of winter. Yeah. So uh, hopefully April. he'll yeah. say a few words about that. April? April. All right. And um, that one is about U.S. grand strategy, I believe. Yeah. Um, his work has been published in a number of major newspapers and other periodicals, and he's also appeared on a variety of television and radio programs. Uh, Dr. Preble holds a Ph.D. in history from Temple University. Chris. Thanks, Kurt. Thanks, Kurt. Thanks to the staff for putting this together, and thanks to all of you for sh for uh, showing up. We um, have been talking about this issue for a couple weeks now, that is, the issue being what will uh, the new president's national security strategy be, uh, how will it differ from that of the Bush administration. Um, during the course of the campaign, of course, we were forced to kind of speculate on how it would differ from not just from George Bush, but also from John McCain. And I think the one <clears throat> aspect of this story that has uh, really sharpened for me over the last few weeks is uh, the degree to which I believe that Barack Obama's foreign policy will be uh, uh, really demonstrate a lot of continuity with 
uh, the previous administration. Now, some of you may think that's a good thing. I don't. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about why um, uh, I've been candidly disappointed so far uh, by uh, the signals that the president-elect has been sending, chiefly through his choice of, of uh, advisors to, uh, who will help him shape his national security strategy. Um, you know, Barack Obama was, was elected on this um, mandate for change, and it wasn't just change in domestic policy, although I think we will see a, a substantial difference, and, and my other colleagues on, in other issue areas have spoken about that at some length. I think we're doing another event tomorrow, right, on, on that subject uh, in terms of domestic policy, tax policy, fiscal policy. But I think that we need to recognize that the, the American people are also anxious for change on foreign policy. Um, and, and the key criteria for me is what, what, do the, what does the American people, what do the public want the U.S. military to do? What do they believe U.S. national security strategy should be geared toward? The bipartisan consensus inside of the Beltway here in Washington is that the United States is and should be the world's policeman. Um, now, this may strike people as perhaps a bit... Um, kind of over the top, but depending on what language you use, you know, uh, Madeleine Albright and Bill Clinton spoke of the United States as the indispensable nation. Um, uh, around that same time, 1996, Bill Crystal, the editor of the Weekly Standard, and Robert Kagan, a, a senior fellow at the Carnegie uh, Endowment, they uh, coined the term benevolent global hegemony. This is what U.S. grand strategy was and should be, they contended. And I think this is the consensus inside of Washington. And what you see within this very narrow frame is a difference of opinion on how we, the United States, uh, can be a better world policeman. And so it's about, it's about tactics. It's about interagency cooperation. It's about uh, you know, building capacity in different areas. But fundamentally, it is about the United States uh, uh, taking on the burdens of global governance uh, on behalf of other countries and other peoples. Now, when you poll the American people on this question, they, uh, they speak... Pretty much with one, but it's about 76% in one of the sur surveys that I've seen, about three out of four say they don't want the United States to be the world's policeman. They expect the United States to be a powerful country. Of course, we're going to be a powerful country. We're wealthy. We have an enormous military. We've invested hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars in our military, and it's going to be very strong for many years to come, and they want that to continue. Uh, but what they want also, and I think more so, is a sharing of burdens, a sharing of responsibilities, other countries taking responsibility, especially for their own security and for security in their respective regions. And this, I suggest to you, is a very, very different model than what is favored inside the Beltway. There is this, this very odd disconnect between uh, the inside and the outside of the Beltway, consensus on what foreign policy is and what it should be. <clears throat> Some of the other areas, and I talk about this, Kurt already alluded to, I talk about this in my, uh, my forthcoming book. It's called The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Prosperous, Less Safe, and Less Free. Uh, and that's a key component of my argument, that by doing things for others that they should be doing for, our, for themselves, we undermine ourselves, we spend enormous amounts of money and expend great effort and also increase the risks for all of us here in the United States, and so that's what I talk about. You know, some of the other elements of this, kind of to be more specific, the other elements of this consensus apply to, uh, for example, fixing failed states. You hear this on both the left and the right 
Uh, it used to be called nation building. People figured out that nation building had a bad odor about it, so it's now called state building or capacity building. Uh, but it basically boils down to the presumption that in order to be secure here in the United States, we, the United States, must be responsible for ensuring there are no ungoverned spaces around the world because there was ostensibly such an ungoverned space in Afghanistan in 2001, and therefore, because uh, that ungoverned space in Afghanistan posed a threat to us, we uh, uh, cannot allow that condition to occur. Uh, the easiest way to refute that argument is to note that the 9-11 hijackers were based for a considerable period of time in Germany, which is not a failed state, and it never has been, or at least not for a very, very long time. Another key component of this bipartisan consensus relates to uh, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, chiefly nuclear weapons, and the appropriate measures for counterproliferation. It's one thing to be in favor of nonproliferation. Then the question becomes, what do you do for those who are parties ostensibly to the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, but who, for a variety of reasons, have not abided by it? I'm thinking specifically about North Korea and Iran. Uh, we can talk about the specifics there in a little bit. And the last point where there is quite a bit of consensus is on the question of humanitarian intervention, intervention that is not geared even indirectly towards advancing U.S. national security interests, but interventions that we undertake for the benefit of mankind, to advance human rights, to, to rescue people who are being persecuted by their governments or by chaos and lawlessness in their respective countries. It's a very, a very uh, consistent uh, a record of this, at least since the end of the Cold War, the United States uses... Uh, its power in this way. The, the inside the Beltway consensus is that we should continue to do this and we should do it more. The outside the Beltway consensus is we should not. So how does Barack Obama fit with this, with this consensus? Well, <clears throat> I think there was some hope, I had some hope, that uh, he was not going to be completely comfortable with this consensus. Uh, and the, the clearest indication I have of that is, was his opposition to the war in Iraq. Now, um, it, it goes beyond just his, his, the, whether or not he agreed with this general frame in terms of U.S. national security strategy, but it re reflected his outsider status as a, as a Illinois state legislator in September of 2002. He surveyed the, record, the, the, the case made for the war in Iraq and I submit to you, he got it right. Uh, he correctly opposed the war, and I think he opposed it on the right grounds. You have a whole group of people inside of Washington, people who had much, much more experience on foreign policy questions, who got it wrong. And this was also a bipartisan problem, let's remember. 29 of the 50 uh, Democratic senators voted in favor of the war resolution in October 2002. I mean, who am I talking about here? I'm talking about John, Ed John Kerry. I'm talking about John Edwards. I'm talking about Hillary Clinton. I'm talking about John McCain. These people all had experience. And yet, they supported the war in Iraq. Barack Obama, in the course of the campaign, his lack of experience, was they, they, uh, his opponents tried to use his lack of experience against him. And both times, both against Hillary Clinton and against John McCain, not only did that lack of experience not hurt him, but I submit to you that it helped him. Because the argument was that all this, exp obviously experience isn't the most important thing. What really matters is good judgment. And good judgment is not synonymous with many years of operating inside of this, inside the Beltway consensus. Well, you can tell where I'm going with this, I hope, uh, which is that um, by his choices to staff the senior national security positions in his administration, 
uh, Barack Obama has signaled a great comfort with the inside the Beltway consensus. I'm talking about Hillary Clinton. I'm talking about keeping on Robert Gates, the Secretary of Defense. I'm talking about James Jones, as National Security Advisor, and Susan Rice as UN Ambassador. Um, but don't just take my word for it. I have to say that the, 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 the words of support for the new uh, Obama team that caused me uh, the greatest concern were from the leading defenders of our current foreign policy and the chief advocates for the war in Iraq. Richard Pearl told the New Republic, I'm relieved. Contrary to expectations, I don't think we would see a lot of change. Dick Cheney called President-elect Barack Obama's national security lineup a pretty good team. Uh, Max Boot, uber-interventionist, who is, who is an unabashed uh, advocate of American imperialism, he says there's no need to run away from the title. Um, he was... Uh, quite pleased. He said, as someone who is skeptical of Obama's moderate posturing during the campaign, I have to admit that I am gobsmacked by these appointments, most of which could just as easily have come from President McCain. This all but puts an end to the 16-month timeline for withdrawal from Iraq, the unconditional summits with dictators, and other foolishness that once emanated from the Obama campaign. His appointment suggests that, if anything, his administration will have uh, uh, rather than a liberal bent, uh, a, he, the, the voices of Clinton and Steinberg, Jim Steinberg at State, should be powerful voices for neoliberalism, Max uh, Boot writes, which is not so different in many respects from neoconservatism. Both, for instance, support humanitarian interventions in places like Darfur and Bosnia. He concluded, quote, only churless partisans on both the left and the right can be unhappy with the emerging tenor of our nation's new leadership. Well, I guess that makes me a churlish partisan, although I'm not really sure which party uh, that would align me up with. Neither, I think, is probably the correct statement. Now, to be fair, there's probably a little bit of wishful thinking in here. Uh, these, these folks believing, uh, I'm, I'm talking about Pearl, I'm talking about Vice President Cheney, I'm talking about Max Boot, these people believing that, that their strategy was still effective and is working in Iraq and elsewhere, and therefore a, a sign of continuity of support for those strategies continuing, that would seem to confirm their, uh, their judgment about what grand strategy we should have. So I'll admit, <clears throat> they also might be being a little cynical, uh, trying to kind of drum up opposition perhaps, but that, that seems too cynical even for me. Um, <clears throat> So I'll admit that where Barack Obama stands is still a little murky. He himself, personally, not just the views of his senior advisors. Um, I first looked at this back uh, over a year ago now, well, no, 18 months ago now, in April of 2007, when, when uh, candidate Obama, Senator Obama, gave a, a speech to the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and then this subsequently was published as an essay in Foreign Affairs later, or big portions of it. What really made me stand up was that Robert Kagan, <clears throat> the gentleman who I mentioned earlier, who with uh, Bill Crystal coined the term benevolent global hegemony, loved Obama's speech to the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations, entitling his column in the Washington Post, Obama the Interventionist. And I thought that was interesting. Um, but I asked myself, and published this article last, last year, what does Barack Obama actually believe? Is he more or less inclined than his predecessors to intervene militarily? And that, to me, is the most important point. <clears throat> I'll concede I don't know the answer to that question. So let me tee up four specific issues uh, that, that are on top of mind for everybody to try to tease this out. The first relates to the war in Iraq. 
and the continuing U.S. presence in Iraq. Um, let me say that I think that, that uh, he, uh, Barack Obama is likely to follow through in his promises to withdraw troops from Iraq. Uh, the status of forces agreement concluded with the government there requires that all troops be out by January, of, uh, January 1st, 2012, by the end of 2011. Now, I'll point out this is much longer than stipulated. Obama said 16 months, but he said combat troops out in 16 months. The status of forces agreement stipulates all U.S. forces out by the end of 2012. The only, I think this is going to happen, finally, uh, and I've been wrong before, uh, but uh, the, the thing to watch out for now is the snatching defeat from the jaws of victory narrative, which the neoconservatives love as applied to Vietnam and who are already using this argument that, see, see, things are going so well in Iraq and were going well when we handed the baton to Barack Obama. So if things go to you-know-where in a handbasket, um, they have a ready explanation for why. Two, Iran. Um, both, during, the, during the campaign, both John McCain and uh, Senator Obama declared that a nuclear-armed Iran would not be permitted. Uh, and both said they would take military action. The one thing to pay attention to on this is the question of nuclear enrichment. Would uh, Barack Obama agree to uh, Iran having a uranium enrichment uh, uh, capability on their soil? Uh, late in the campaign, John McCain hinted that he would accept such a thing. Obama's position officially is still no enrichment. And I think that's going to be a key sticking point potentially for negotiations. Afghanistan, we know the position on Afghanistan. Uh, uh, Ben's going to talk about that a little bit more, which is more troops, more robust diplomacy. I'm a little unclear on how that's all going to work out. And, and, and in particular, I'm unclear how the additional troops are going to uh, have some great success in Afghanistan, where so far we've had some real setbacks. The last point I want to emphasize is the question of intervention in Darfur. Because I think this is really the test case of Obama's commitment to the current grand strategy. Um, again, here, he has spoken in the past of using uh, U.S. military force, uh, about enforcing uh, no-fly zones, also logistics support and things like that. But his advisors have been more outspoken on this. A recent, um, well, first of all, in 2006, Susan Rice, along with Tony Lake, who was another senior Obama advisor and, uh, and Representative Payne, uh, made the case for military action against Darfur and explicitly said that if the United Nations did not support that action, the United States should go ahead and take the action anyway. After all, that's what we did in Kosovo, and that was a good thing. It, as an aside, I do find it interesting that Susan Rice is now going to be making the case to the United Nations for why ultimately they are irrelevant, but uh, they should go along. Uh, I just toss that out there uh, as an aside. Uh, a, a very recent article in the Washington Post just from a week ago really highlights the, the positions taken by uh, Obama's senior advisors. Hillary Clinton has called for a no-fly uh, no zone. Uh, obviously, Susan Rice, who said, uh, who was actually in the Clinton administration during the Rwandan genocide and who was quoted in the Post story as vowing to go down in flames, advocating tough measures against uh, Khartoum. Uh, Vice President-elect Joseph Biden uh, said he would use American force in a hearing last year, also in a Democratic debate last year. So uh, these folks are out in front on this issue. Uh, se separately, however, I will note Bob Gates and Jim Jones have both uh, expressed some great skepticism. Uh, Gates has refused to provide logistic support, uh, citing the strains on the military in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And Jones has suggested that even a NATO role, not the United States in the lead, but even a NATO role should be limited to uh, training. 
and not active combat. So I would suggest that testing my theory that, uh, that Barack Obama represents more continuity than change and that part of continuity is humanitarian intervention along the lines of what was uh, conducted during the 1990s uh, to watch his behavior very specifically uh, with respect to Darfur, and I think that will be the, the clearest signal we have uh, as to what, uh, how different his uh, foreign policy will be from that of his predecessors. Thank you very much. Our second speaker today is uh, Benjamin Friedman. And uh, after Mr. Friedman speaks, we're going to open it up for some questions from the audience. Um, so be ready for that. Um, Mr. Friedman is a research fellow in defense and homeland security studies at the Cato Institute. He is a PhD candidate in political science and an affiliate of the security studies program at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. His areas of expertise include counterterrorism, homeland security, and defense politics, with a threat on, uh, with a focus on threat perception. He is co-editing a book on U.S. military innovation since the Cold War, and his work has appeared in a number of uh, newspapers and journals. Mr. Friedman is a graduate of Dartmouth College. Thanks. All right. Well, th thanks for coming out. I'll um, I'll try to say uh, uh, some stuff that Chris didn't. Um, I'm going to talk more. Uh, I want to talk about defense policy, but I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty of the uh, defense budget, unfortunately, because of time. And that I've written about that in a couple places. Uh, most recently, in the in the Cato uh, Policy Handbook, I got a chapter on that. If you're interested. Um, now, one thing you always hear in Washington is that, is that what we need uh, for U.S. defense is a is a bipartisan strategy that will govern policy, even as administrations change, just as containment did during the Cold War. I, I think that's backwards. I think we need uh, more dissent and argument about defense, not less. I think we already got something of a bipartisan consensus, as Chris said, uh, concerning defense and certainly concerning counterterrorism. And I'm going to talk about a couple of those issues, ones that uh, uh, Chris didn't. Although I think today, as during the Cold War, there's disagreement about what exactly the strategy entails, especially with regard to Iraq. But just look at how little argument there is uh, today about the defense budget. Now, there's supposed to be this big fight between people who want the military to be used for small wars and people who want it to be focused on uh, conventional big wars with, with Gates taking the lead. But look at what happens with the budget. Gates hasn't done much uh, to, to put that emphasis, to put that mark on the defense budget. He's actually uh, submitted a budget that's much bigger that's going to fund all kinds of conventional weapon systems for the services. Um, that fight is really about sort of the Army's politics, this big war, small war fight, and a few procurement programs, but it doesn't get into the real uh, nitty-gritty of the defense budget. Um, you know, everyone agrees, uh, seemingly, that we ought to keep giving the Navy and the Air Force, who are focused mostly on big wars, their traditional slice of the defense budget, essentially one-third of the budget, which is we've divided it up equally since the Kennedy administration, rather than uh, focusing spending on the Army. Now, it seems to me if you're serious about fighting a lot of small wars, which are uh, manpower intensive, you ought to give maybe half the budget to the ground forces, but nobody suggests that. Um, so I, and I think that's because of a lot of this, the shared assumptions that I'm going to get to. Now, the bipartisan consensus includes, I think, the Bush administration in its later years. I think the beginning of the Bush administration was a little different, but in its later years, it's, it's become uh, very more centrist, and certainly the uh, Obama appointees, as, uh, as Chris mentioned. So uh, what are the elements of this? Number one, U.S. military hegemony is necessary to world stability and trade. 
Number two, our Cold War alliances are worth keeping. Number three, counterterrorism requires global counterinsurgency, and I'll describe what I mean by that, and, and from that comes the need to uh, uh, succeed in a nation-building mission in Afghanistan and expand the ground forces. So I'm going to describe the conventional thinking on these uh, points and then describe why it's wrong. And in doing so, I want to uh, explain at least partially why we support, why I support another kind of grand strategy, which is uh, we call the strategy of restraint. Now, that strategy would jettison most U.S. overseas commitments, uh, our current alliance structure, attempt to avoid nation-building and counterinsurgency campaigns, and therefore allow great reductions in force structure with the Army and the Marines taking, taking the lead in the cuts. Uh, and I think we can do this, we ought to do it, because we actually don't face very significant threats right now to our national security from states. So uh, let me talk about the elements of the consensus. Number one, primacy or hegemony. Uh, primacy is the basis for our military size. Primacy being the idea that we should so dominate the world militarily that no new great powers will rise, friend or foe. The idea is that U.S. global military might and implicit threats to use it for others' defense produce enough stability to make our military budget worthwhile. So, for example, U.S. power demonstrates to China that it will be blocked from expansion, and that arrests China's military ambitions and its spending, and therefore Japan doesn't militarize uh, to match it. Neither then grows into a great military power that challenges our leadership, and the world is more stable for it. Trade flows, and we benefit. Now, at the end of the Cold War, that was a neoconservative position that was meant to justify the continuation of Cold War levels of military spending in the absence of the Soviet Union. It was advocated by people like Charles Krauthammer and Paul Wolfowitz. Now it's the de facto position of the D.C. foreign policy establishment in both parties. Restraint, my position, Chris, is, says instead that our global military posture creates enemies and does not increase uh, does not increase. Instability. Now, two realist ideas guide this conclusion. The first is that stable balances of power will develop in our absence. Um, China and Japan, uh, if they have a military rivalry in the absence of U.S. military pre uh, presence in Asia, uh, will, uh, will balance each other, but it will be stable. The, the history of the world is uh, full of stable balances of power, and that that's not necessarily dangerous for the United States. The second realist idea is that our dominance and military activism produces rivals, uh, produces enemies. States balance power. We drive states like China to increase their military spending with our uh, our military uh, uh, dominance and activism. We drive smaller states that have bad relationships with the United States to do things like develop nuclear weapons. So balance of power. Nor is there evidence that world trade depends on our military hegemony. Now, I can explore this, this point more. I can't really uh, explain it fully here. But let me just say now that, that globalization, by increasing the number of suppliers and supply routes of goods, makes U.S. efforts to police particular uh, uh, sea lanes or uh, uh, suppliers' territory less necessary. New suppliers are available if disruption occurs. That's what globalization is. The idea that, in particular, that free flows of oil require U.S. forces nearby or even uh, peace and supplier regions really, I don't think, stands up to historical scrutiny. If you look at, you know, the Iran-Iraq war, for instance, they were pumping oil that whole time. Uh, it didn't really affect markets. <clears throat> so primacy, as Robert Jervis put it, is a game not worth the candle, and that's one reason we can reduce our military spending substantially at no cost to our security. Um, military alliances, next point. Both parties now agree that we should continue our alliances with Japan, our NATO allies, and Korea essentially forever, 
finding ways to use them. The consensus sees alliances as an obviously good thing. It says that alliances find missions, not the other way. What's been forgotten is that these alliances were formed because of an imbalance of power at the start of the Cold War, which is long gone. Indeed, it was long gone by the end of the Cold War. At the start of the Cold War, we were concerned that communist nations could either conquer or capture by insurrections the world's industrial centers outside the United States, uh, West Europe and, and Japan, and harness enough of that power to threaten us. Korea was always a border case, I think. So we had to defend those nations uh, uh, so that they could avoid spending heavily and uh, recover their economy, and then they could do it themselves. That was containment. But it grew over time into something else, so that by the time these countries could defend themselves somewhere in the middle of the Cold War, we'd forgotten our self-interested reasons for defending them in the first place, and the commitment became a perpetual security subsidy, which has outlasted the enemies that caused it, in Europe in particular. So today these alliances have become useless or even dangerous, and they waste money by heightening our defense commitments. Restraint says that these alliances should have ended with the Cold War, and the last thing we should do is expand NATO to Georgia and Ukraine, a position that the Obama administration supports uh, along with the Bush administration. To me, if you designed a perfect country not to have an alliance with, it would be Georgia. It has an ethnic and border conflict with a stronger state with nuclear weapons. It has no intrinsic benefit, nothing to offer us from a security perspective, and it has leadership with a demonstrated capacity for recklessness. Ukraine's not much better. Uh, most of its citizens don't want to be in NATO, so we shouldn't force that alliance on them. Now, not all alliances are the same. Not all our alliances are the same. Uh, but as a superpower, our alliances are plagued by two distinct problems. The first is moral hazard, um, where we bear the cost of the misconduct and therefore uh, encourage recklessness. Um, now, uh, and, that, and that can pull us into conflicts, and I think we saw that to some extent with Georgia, which of course didn't have a security guarantee, but their president seemed to think that they did, and that encouraged him to maybe behave recklessly vis-a-vis -vis Russia last summer. Japan, Taiwan, uh, and even Israel, I think, uh, show occasional symptoms of this same problem. Second problem with our alliances is free riding. Our allies avoid the cost of their own defense. We're giving you guys a free lunch today, and so it's perfectly rational for you not to buy one. <laughs> um, you know, Europe has four times Russia's military spending right now, the, the EU, and it has more wealth collectively than the United States. It can defend itself. Uh, the same goes for Japan and doubly so for South Korea, which has exponentially more wealth than North Korea. It's hard to figure out how much more than zero you have, but it's a lot more. Um, <clears throat> With our common enemy gone, we don't owe our friends in Europe and Asia security guarantees, just as they don't owe us loyalty. And I, I would just say finally on this point that good relations are not dependent on military alliances. I'm, I'm all for having uh, robust diplomatic economic relationships with these countries. I'm just not for defending them in perpetuity. Third point, uh, uh, the third element of the conventional wisdom that the Obama administration seems likely to adopt is that counterterrorism requires global counterinsurgency. I would just note that uh, Senator Obama said when he was campaigning, I think at the Wilson Center, that uh, counterterrorism requires ending hopelessness in the world. And I thought that was a good follow-on for the current president's effort to end evil as part of the war on terrorism. Uh, the idea is that uh, to be safe from terrorism, we need to fight a series of military campaigns to stabilize failed states. And then there's this related idea that we have to fight a war of ideas to convince Muslims to embrace liberalism rather than jihadism or extremism. I want to focus on the, on the first element of that, but let me just say this about the war of ideas. Most jihadists 
and even most of those who use the label al-Qaeda are concerned with their local government and attack local targets. Terrorism is in most cases part of someone else's civil war. The principal actors in counterterrorism are local governments and their intelligence and police services, and it is they and not us who need to win the loyalty that it produces intelligence and defeats terrorists. It is therefore they and not us who are fighting and need to win a war of ideas, even if their idea is not liberal democracy. What we need to do is not to win hearts and minds in the Islamic world, but avoid so antagonizing people that they devote their lives to killing Americans or supporting those who do. And I would say that is accomplished not by injecting ourselves and our ideas about how people ought to run their countries uh, into political fights, but by avoiding them. And I'd say that the long-term prospects for al-Qaeda-type ideology are poor because it is so extreme. There's not a great deal of love anywhere in the world for people who murder civilians, especially where they cannot plausibly claim to be fighting a foreign occupation. These people are going to lose. We should let them. Liberalism, I I would say, spreads mostly by example, and we ought to go go back to being a country that uh, demonstrates it rather than uh, act as its vindicator. The main element of this global counterinsurgency notion is the idea that counterterrorism requires a series of counterinsurgency campaigns. That's because, as Chris mentioned, uh, it said that terrorists organize and train in places where government authority is limited in failed states like the Taliban's Afghanistan. The policy prescriptions that come out of that are that we need the ability to occupy and pacify several foreign states at once. So counterinsurgency, I'm sorry, counterterrorism becomes counterinsurgency and state building in this analysis. And because these missions are manpower intensive, we need to expand the size of the Army and the Marine Corps, which Obama, of course, supports. Because they require uh, civilians, we need a civilian corps drawn from uh, agencies like Treasury and Agriculture, bureaucrats that can be rapidly deployed to places where America goes to war. And we also need to reform our national security planning and coordination process. We need a Goldwater-Nichols for the national security establishment uh, to execute these missions and plan them. Um, I think there, there are two problems with this, with this analysis. The first is that we can't be good at these missions. There are inherent, inherent limits to how uh, well we can perform at them. And the second is that we don't need to be, that these, these wars are unnecessary. Now, today Washington is infused with this idea that state building is like engineering. There's a science and you apply it. So think tanks on both sides are putting out guides to improve our national security planning process, as Chris mentioned, to better fix states that we occupy, and even some that we don't, like Pakistan. I think this is hubristic. I think the great minds of Washington cannot plan political outcomes in far-off states with foreign cultures. Iraq and Afghanistan, I think, demonstrate something we already knew but maybe forgot, that we lack the power to reorder foreign societies, at least at reasonable costs, at least using methods that are consistent with liberal values. I think what we've discovered in the last seven years is not a cookbook for remaking collapsed states, but a set of best practices that even if executed perfectly cannot reliably or even regularly build states. Even where we suppress violence, we lack the ability to solve the political problems that caused it in the first place. Now everyone today condemns our national security establishment for not being prepared to suppress insurgencies at the start of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, but I think we need to examine why this was so not just to fix it, but to consider whether or not there were good reasons for this lack of preparation in the first place. Bureaucracies and organizations, including the military services, execute our policies, including counterinsurgency campaigns, and bureaucracies are made over time. They are servants of national interest, but not this year's. So they're remnants of past desires, the national security realm, past threats, and they've enshrined methods of operations and cultures even to serve those desires. 
So when politicians today insist that the State Department prepare diplomats to run villages in Helmand province alongside Army artillery officers, these organizations say they're on it, and they send, uh, they head off smartly to do the task, but they run up against decades of contrary ins- instructions that shaped their organization. Now, I don't have time to go into all the, all the ways the organizations are not shaped for these missions. But let me say this. By design, our army is meant to destroy other armies, not to build states. By design, our State Department is not a colonial service. It is meant to relate to foreign states, not to run them. And these institutional barriers that inhibit our ability to fight these wars are not accidents. They reflect lasting national interests, namely a disinclination to subjugate foreign people and fight these sorts of wars. Americans, of course, historically saw the small wars European powers fought to maintain imperial holdings as illiberal and unjust. Misadventures like Vietnam were the exception that made this rule. Vietnam brought us the Weinberger-Powell Doctrine, which was intended to prevent counterinsurgency in state-building missions, essentially. Um, The claim, of course, embraced implicitly by uh, uh, the Bush administration and and probably by the Obama administration is that all this changed because of the war on terrorism. but as, as uh, because of failed states, because terrorism, terrorism breeds in failed states. But um, the idea that chaos in states causes terrorism, I think, fails the most basic causality sniff test, which is that there's no correlation. A few anarchic states, Afghanistan, Algeria, maybe Iraq, have arguably produced international terrorists, but the vast majority have not. Even in Afghanistan, the main example of this phenomenon, the problem was more that the government, the Taliban, allied with al-Qaeda and that there was no government. Most of the time, failed states are inhospitable to everyone, including terrorists. And you see this with Somalia. We've been told for years that this is going to be the next al-Qaeda base, and it hasn't happened, I would argue, because uh, people of Somalia are not, they don't really like foreigners, whether or not they're Arabs or Americans. Um, in most cases, failed states don't affect our security. Yes. They should be carefully watched, but only on, the, only on the rarest occasions should we intervene, should we participate in the politics of those countries. We should take a wait-and-see approach. Where terrorists do appear, we can use conventional military means to strike them and deter states from hosting them. We can induce local actors, tribes, or militias to attack them or give us intelligence so that we can. We can do that without running the state and without social engineering. That means the war on terrorism does not require a series of state-building missions and the expansion of the Army and Marine Corps, new interagency planning process, and all that stuff. And Afghanistan is a good example of this. Uh, you know, the Obama administration wants uh, to send a couple new brigades there uh, and, and send more aid. And, I, you know, I don't uh, support that, but I don't think it's, it's, it's the worst part of the deal. I think the problem is the, the, the idea that lies behind that, which is what we need to do to succeed there is expand the reach of the central government so that's a stable and orderly state, and we've got to win the loyalty of the Pashtun Southerners who support the Taliban. I think in some ways the central government in Afghanistan is the problem, um, and particularly it's predatory national police services who drive people into the arms of the insurgents. In this case, counterinsurgency and state building are not the same thing by embracing local actors at the, ex- at the expense of the state as an Anbar province, um, we might find a solution in Afghanistan that allows us to leave sooner than later rather than fighting a generational war meant to make that society look like ours with women's rights and roads and electricity grids and everything else. All those things are great things to have, but realism is about making choices, uh, about prioritizing goods. Now, to close, I just want to point out that on this issue and others, Secretary Gates has shown considerable pragmatism, and he is indeed a pragmatist, as everyone says, and I think that's a good thing. But uh, I would just say uh, that I worry whether or not we're getting more effective 
servants of mistaken policies. So I'd rather have uh, competent people executing bad policies, but I'd rather have good policies. All right. Well, Chris and Ben just put an awful lot on the table, so I'm sure you guys have all sorts of questions about uh, additional details for the things they mentioned. Um, I do want to point out that this was sort of a 30,000-foot level discussion, and we have a lot more specific stuff on our website and also in the books and other articles that these gentlemen have written, uh, and their colleagues, of course. Uh, now, I'm going to take moderator's prerogative. I had a whole raft of policy-related questions that I was going to put out there, but uh, they seem to have tackled most of them. So I'm left with, <laughs> I'm left with a political question. And I'm wondering, given the relatively... Um, well, given your assessment that the Obama administration's policies regarding foreign affairs are going to be roughly much of the same, um, do you think that reflects a, um, a position of the administration that foreign policy is going to be a relatively minor component of the administration? In other words, are they focusing their firepower, as it were, on domestic issues and they're trying to avoid ruffling feathers in the foreign policy community? I think that's logical. Uh, I think it's, I mean, it, it should be obvious that the, the most urgent challenge for the new administration is the, is the economy. I don't, I'm not entirely enthusiastic about their proposal so far for, for fixing that problem, but um, Barack Obama has clearly signaled that that's where he'd like to focus most of attention. And I think you're right, Kurt, that, um, that, that avoiding a fight over foreign policy uh, might win him some allies that prove useful uh, on the domestic front. Uh, my concern, however, is that our our defense establishment is very expensive because it is in the service of this very expansive uh, foreign policy. And so I think if we're serious about, uh, if we're even remotely serious about controlling spending, uh, then military spending has to be on the table. And that I, means a change of strategy. I mean, I, I think some of it might be strategic in the sense that you mentioned, but for the most part, um, I, I think these are as I mentioned, I think these are beliefs that people hold, and they're based on ideas about how the world works, which I disagree with. But I, I don't, I don't think it's um, necessarily a political strategy. I think it's it's uh, based on belief. All right. So I want to ask first if there's any questions from Hill staff, Just staff members of Congress. Okay. Um, how about journalists, ma'am? Border to the border.
Thank you. Well, you know, on my attitude on borders is, look, you know, we got very long borders, and the idea that you can defend them completely is wrong. So uh, you have to accept vulnerability and try to do, you know, you're, you want to spend your dollar, I think, mainly on other things when it comes to reducing vulnerability. I'm talking about with regard to terrorists. I'm not – I don't particularly study immigration. And uh, I don't really know the answer to the, the part about Texas, so I'll just skip that. No, but you've spoken about the, the CSMARPS issue and about domestic law enforcement by the military. Yeah, I okay. Um, well, there, there's a, a posse comitatus issue, and there's a lot of concern right now about um, the use of uh, the military in the United States. And I would just say that, uh, you know, the um, the way they're being used does not create a posse comitatus problem. I'd prefer that we didn't use the military for these missions, these uh, responding to uh, massive attacks, because I think our military is kind of busy. But um, uh, I think it's it's not the biggest issue. Gentlemen. Well, I think the, what, what you just articulated is sort of what uh, Obama says. I mean, he, you know, I think sees this more as an economic and uh, um, uh, political problem in these places. But um, the short answer is no. I, I mean, I think that uh, I would prefer, you know, if the alternative is let's do things to help them develop politically or let's invade them, I would take the former. But I'd prefer neither. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't think we ought to be in the business of uh, doing a great deal of uh, spending a great deal of money to uh, help other states stabilize, largely because it's, it, it doesn't work. We don't know how to do it. And uh, we can demonstrate that to ourselves over and over again, uh, or we can just sort of accept reality. So, um, you know, I, I, I think uh, stability is a good thing overall, and we, we should be for it. And we should, you know, like in Sudan, uh, there's a very serious political problem that's producing instability there. It's a civil war. There's probably going to be uh, another civil war uh, starting again soon in a few years. Um, the United States can help diplomatically to resolve that conflict. That's fine. Um, but that, that's different than, than occupying the country and different than uh, putting a lot of people on the ground and, you know, telling them who they ought to elect and how. Uh, on that same question, um, as part of the counterterrorism project that we're doing in the conference next month, we will have a panel talking about the, the root causes or risk factors relating to terrorism. And I think there's a pretty, uh, pretty substantial body of literature that kind of uh, refutes the notion that economic powerlessness or uh, despair is the key driver of, of terrorism. And to the extent that it is or can be a key driver, it's not traditionally in uh, weak or failing states. It's in the more uh, healthy and secure states like the UK and the Netherlands and France and elsewhere where you have uh, uh, political uh, uh, powerlessness or the perception of political powerlessness contributing to alienation and uh, hostility and sometimes uh, outright violence. Um, but that's very different than believing that the chief uh, driver of, of uh, terrorism is uh, the just abject poverty in places like Somalia or Afghanistan. Another implication that I heard in the question was economic uh, measures. And I, I wondered if you were including trade in that. Uh, you're probably aware that um, Cato scholars 
uh, support free trade and uh, generally believe that complete unilateral elimination of trade barriers is uh, a much better policy than what we have now. Um, so I'd be interested in your comments on the impact of right. freer trade uh, in terms of uh, international relations and security. Sure. I mean, I, I, Kurt's right. I mean, I have argued uh, explicitly that a, a more uh, genuinely liberal trade policy, particularly with respect to agriculture, uh, would pay dividends in national, on the national security grounds because uh, in places where people are, uh, you know, heavily dependent upon growing agriculture for their livelihood, uh, our policies are kind of um, disproportionately harmful to them. Of course, they're also harmful to America to Americans who pay more for food uh, because of our agricultural policies. We, we published a paper, I and two of my colleagues published a paper a few years ago, which laid out all of the many arguments for reforming, fundamentally reforming our agricultural uh, policy. And I made the argument in the context of uh, uh, reforming it in a more liberal, genuinely liberal direction would advance our national security. So if you're interested in that, you can look at that paper as well. Yes, sir. Could you let us know who you are? Sir? 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 Sir, could you let us know who you are? Could you let us know who you are? Yes, please. Did you, did you have a question, sir? I'm not quite that cynical. Uh, I'm a very cynical person by nature, but I'm not that cynical. Yes. Yeah, I think. I mean, on on that on that on the question of Iraq. I mean, this is the issue that I've written the most about. Um, well, I've been at Cato now for almost six years, and. 
uh, as, I, as I said, I've been wrong before. After the 2006 congressional election, I really believed that, uh, that we would see a change in course. And, of course, we saw a change in course, but it was in the opposite direction from where I wanted, wanted us to go. Um, but I, I think we have to really pay serious attention to the status of forces agreement that was concluded with the Iraqi government, uh, that this agreement uh, it will govern the U.S. presence after the end of this year, okay? And that agreement, if you read the text of that agreement, um, uh, it, it is very much of what the United States is doing at the behest of or with the uh, agreement of the Iraqi government. And I think that that combined with the clear public sentiment in the United States for a withdrawal, according to a timeline even faster than the Status of Forces Agreement allows, will make that happen. However, I want to reiterate that the narrative of defeat, which is is just out there, it's just waiting for someone to hook into it, which is everything was going swimmingly when when George Bush saluted and walked off the stage. Everything was going great. Violence is down. Political reconciliation is happening. It's all these good things. And I think that the opportunity for people to blame uh, Barack Obama for anything bad that happens in Iraq is going to be enormous because, I'll be candid, I do think that things are going to get worse before they get better in Iraq, and I think there is a distinct possibility because the political reconciliation process has not uh, firmed up by any stretch that following the withdrawal of U.S. troops or even during the withdrawal of U.S. troops that you may see an increase in violence. And I think that the, that if President Obama is as committed to withdrawal on its own terms, that is, it is in our interest to get out, then he will not be dissuaded by uh, the conditions on the ground, which, again, in the short term may look quite uh, inauspicious. <clears throat> All right, the floor is open. Oh, you, sir. Um, Washington seems to be pretty impervious to public opinion. <laughs> you know, yes. The majority of the people want drilling offshore and in Alaska, and we're not doing it. The majority of the people didn't want a bailout, and we committed $700 billion to it. Right. So yeah, we didn't have to worry about it this year at Thanksgiving because there was plenty of suffering here, but uh, in future years, when the economy is better here uh, and the media does their standard thing, they go to some place where they're starving kids <coughs> in the world to make us feel guilty of Thanksgiving and Christmas time. How do we stop the Washington establishment from putting us into Darfur or the Congo or some other place when you know, the, the American people don't want us to be the policemen, but Washington does? American people, if you give them a poll and you say, do you want to be the world's policeman, they say no. If you give them a poll and you say, do you want to go to X or Y place, they say yes. So, uh, you know, I think Washington is very pervious to public opinion, and the public is in many ways uh, – I may disagree with Chris a little. I think the, the public shares a lot of the bad ideas that we're talking about, or at least they're not engaged enough to understand the implications of some of their beliefs. You know, we talk about the war in Iraq. Why did that happen? I don't think it happened because everyone in uh, in Washington was a crook or an idiot. I think it happened because essentially the United States people and the, the politicians included sort of fell in love with the use of force in the 1990s as a result of the Cold War, as a result of the end of the Cold War, as a result of the Gulf War, which was sort of this celebration of military prowess and efficiency. And uh, sort of thought it was magic powder that you sprinkle on regions of the world where you want things to get better. You just got to look at Tom Friedman's uh, column in the New York Times before the war saying what the 
what the Middle East needs is a, is a, is a shock to the system. He's just basically saying start a war and everything will fall into place there. I mean, this is nuts. But this was an idea that was widely held in the United States, and I think it was widely held because of some of the stuff that happened in the 90s. All these wars seemed to go great, and the public was part of the problem. I, I, I do agree with that. Ben and I don't disagree as, mu- as much as, as, as we sometimes – we do disagree from time to time, but not on that. Uh, the, the key is in – and I, I emphasize this in my book um, – in bringing the costs home, okay, very explicitly. Now, one way to bring the cost home is to resort to conscription. I work at the Cato Institute. I'm not a fan of that. You can imagine, okay? But there is an argument to be made that because we have a volunteer force that most people are not required to sacrifice personally to, uh, to exercise, to implement this uh, benevolent global hegemony, as they call it. Um, the other way... There are two other ways to reconnect or to remind people of the costs of military, uh, the use of military force up front. Uh, one is uh, to, to return to the founder's vision, which is a declaration of war, which, of course, we haven't done since December of 1941. Uh, the founders wanted the public to have some say in when and whether we go to war. They expressed that not through plebiscite, but through their representatives in Congress. And the representatives in Congress have consistently abrogated their responsibilities, and I would argue their oath to the Constitution, by consistently awarding and kind of after the fact granting legitimacy to interventions that are taken by one man. Again, the founders were particularly worried about that, and, and yet we have exactly what they were worried about. The other way to bring this, this home is to pay for wars up front, not pay for them on debt. Now, again, for a whole host of reasons, I'm not a fan of that because that would require much higher taxes, but it would bring the costs home. And the notion of paying for war on the credit card is, I think, particularly, uh, particularly worrisome, not for me, uh, but for my kids and for my kids' kids. And, and I think we, um, you know, we're, we're staring at an enormous federal budget deficit already and even larger next year. And I think we have to account for the costs of our military, which is a cost indirectly of our foreign policies. And, and I think we need to get a much better handle on that. Right. Let's take the lady in the middle there. And this is actually going to have to be our last question. I, well, you know, you're talking about the this, this deals they're doing with Venezuela and the, this little uh, naval contingent that went down there. I, you know, I think the, the Pentagon's reaction to that was right, which was to say, you know, we're surprised the ships made it and we don't really care. Because, uh, you know, they're, they're, it's, the, Hugo Chavez is putting on a little show when he's doing it for politi- uh, domestic political consumption and Putin's doing the same thing. And who cares? I mean, you know, it's not a threat to U.S. Na- now, I'd prefer they didn't do it, but it's not a threat to U.S. national security. And they want to sign deals with uh, Venezuela's oil company. That's fine, too. Oil's a global commodity. You can't wrap up downstream supply. It doesn't make sense economically. So I think basically we should shrug. Um, there was a great paper that came out a couple years ago called Energy Security Alarmism. So if you're interested in the nexus between security and oil on the global market, um, I think that's a, a great primer on those issues. Well, we do have to wrap up, but we can stick around for a few minutes um, afterwards um, if you guys want to talk to us directly. Um, let's thank our speakers, and uh, thank you all for coming. Thank you.